Well, what's up, TDP family? We are here for our, this is our fifth, our fifth uh, TDP talk. I think it TDP. is our fifth book talk, TDP still TDP. be reading. TDP yes. be reading. Let me go ahead and go through We're my books reading. like I always do. <laughs> <laughs> it's become this quite a like stack now. Part. I love it. I love it. So it book one. Quite a stack. Book one, The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. That's right. We had book to set two, it off right. Yes. The Purpose of Power by Alicia Garza. Black Lives upside Always down. Matter. Is that upside down? Was it? No. You, you sure you had one drink or two? Show the people again. Okay, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And then we hit, hit him with uh, The Marathon Don't Stop, The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle by Rob Kenner. That's right. Uh, a dope it was a marathon of a book, too. That joint was long. It was like it was almost 400 pages, right? 300 and so pages? It was. That was, that was yeah, it was a marathon. One of the longest books I've read since college, but uh, definitely a, a, a cool read. You learned a lot about L.A. Wait, you so learned you a lot about Chocolate City, though. Oh, that book. That book is holding, there's a book, a doorstop yeah. right now, so, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> like, Breathe. <laughs> so. I, I can't wait to read it. I, I told you. Wait, uh, show, watch the it. People how thin, show the people how thin, how happy you were that it was a thin book. I was excited about Imani Perry's <laughs> Breathe. Um, I fell in love with Imani Perry, as anyone right. who has listened to our book talk knows. I love this book, Breathe, A Letter to My Sons by you Imani really Perry. Did. And we have since yep. moved on to, we had to split. Anyone who's been following TDP knows that uh, we planned on talking about two books today. Uh, by We had really big ambitions. We did. And those ambitions could have been pulled off if not for uh, rain pouring down in the Bahamas and me making a mad dash for shelter and somehow losing the book <laughs> in the process and being in <laughs> to no avail, Lost and Found did not find the book. So I had to that order a book like the on dog ate your homework. I had to order the book on Amazon. I have went against my uh, normal purposeful go to of going to a black bookstore because I was like, maybe if I get it from really quickly, it'll be there when I get home. It was here, but I still think we're going to, we've decided that we're going to put off the talk until July 11th for Nothing Personal by James Baldwin. Yeah, that's my birthday weekend. Oh, are you sure you're going to be able to join us or will you be, um, you'll be in the right state yeah. of mind? For, 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 <laughs> that's not how you roll. I don't even know why I suggest that. That's not how you roll, Robert. Yes, you'll be def definitely ready for reading book books. Reading books is like, you know, one of my favorite things. So, of course, I'm going to be ready. Right, right. It'll be my birthday weekend. So, you know, I'll be responsible up, my and ready. Jay, do I have a niche yet? Who? East Texas? Uh, who is he? East, East Texas, Texas. Uh, Bama. Be like he's like a it's like a cross between being a Texas boy and Wakanda, uh, you know we we woke like that. Yeah, we woke like that. Um, that's my brother. That's my brother. Oh, he said tomorrow. But I'm expect. Oh, tomorrow. Okay, okay. Thank you. I was ready. I was ready to celebrate. Uh, but and I want to add too, these glasses on my face. We were in these rapid wave pools that goes around the little resort. And I lost my glasses. Mm -hmm. And a day later, I called Lost and Found. And they're like, yes, we have your glasses for you, Mr. Uh, Stallworth. 
but a book, a whole book, they couldn't find. But uh, you know, anyway. Somebody, so somebody needed read, and your book washed up at their feet, <laughs> and they thought that it was God answering their call. Yeah, it's like a good. Book. Oh, check out this book with all these wonderful notes inside of it. Beautiful, I know. And that's what happened. That's what happened. But what we will talk about today is the fire next time. The seminal text from James Baldwin. Um, uh, amazing the read. James Baldwin. The James Baldwin. Um, I must admit, I haven't uh, spent enough time with James Baldwin in recent years. It's probably during my college days when I really spent good time with him. And that was for assignments, and that was in my 20s, so I couldn't appreciate it the way I can appreciate it now. But this book, The Fire Next Time, it's amazing how more was the um, education of the Negro. So, you know, we as black folks, The Fire Next Time explains to why things are still relevant and how the fire needs to come. But we'll get to that at the end of the conversation, I, I imagine. Um, so how do we jump it off, Rhonda? What do you think? Where should we get started with this book talk? Um, um, how about, can I drop some facts? Yeah, tell us a little bit about the book so or Brother Baldwin. To set some uh, context. So mm -hmm. James Baldwin was born in August 1924. So born just before the Harlem Renaissance in New York, in Harlem. I'm pointing uptown because I'm in New York right now. And so he was born in Harlem to a young-ish, large family, multiple siblings. I don't remember the exact number, but let's say it was like seven siblings or so. And his stepfather, David Baldwin, um, was not the happiest of men and had an overpowering force in the family. His stepfather also suffered from a mental illness. And so that mental illness um, impacted his ability to be loving and caring and to have a positive influence on Baldwin's life. In particular, he used to say really mean things to James Baldwin. He used to talk about the way that he looks and his studious nature. But ironically, his stepfather was actually a man of the church. And so mm -hmm. on the one hand, he's preaching the word of God. And then on the other hand, he's beating his children and causing a very unhappy household. Mm -hmm. uh, he dies when Baldwin, I think, is 19. And Baldwin's role in the family and supporting his younger siblings. Um, Anna Malika Tubbs wrote Three Mothers, the book that you wanted to read, Aaron. I, I do have it. She actually profiles... Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. this is a great um, accompaniment to read and learn more about Baldwin's childhood because Tubbs files Baldwin's mother. And in profiling Baldwin's mother, you get a much deeper understanding of the household in which he was raised by understanding more about his mother. Gotcha. So The Fire Next Time was published in 1963. And for those of us who don't remember U.S. history or when all of the dates get jumbled together, 1963 was a hell of a time in the United States. At the time, um, some things that were happening in 1963, the United States was involved in the VA. It publishes letter from a Birmingham jail. So MLK had um, arrested and jailed, and he writes to his fellow clergyman. And Medgar Evers, the civil rights leader, was uh, murdered in front of his children, in front of his home. The March on Washington was in August. Sam Cooke records change gonna come. Not it, 
Malcolm X mm -hmm. also delivers a powerful speech message to the grassroots and then our president Kennedy uh, JFK John F. Kennedy was assassinated in November of 1963 so that is the context in which Baldwin publishes the fire next time but what is so interesting is that sounds like what we're going through right now minus the assassination of a president right. but we are uh, in the midst of the beginning of a presidency of um, a person who has made great promises to uh, to black people and to marginalize people, people of color, mm -hmm. um, people who are low income, low wealth, working class people, people who need health care. And now we're watching closely to see if he is delivering on those promises. So you can imagine that Baldwin is that voice is sitting back and critiquing all that's happening. And the last thing that I'll say, he writes this and publishes this on the centennial of the Emancipation 1863. So he is writing um, 100 years after the uh, issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation and basically doing what we're doing right now and asking, so how far have we come? You know, right. what's, what's the status of the world? So. Right. And, and all those, fair. all those yeah. facts that you ticked off, that's, that's a lot to just breathe in and realize that to sit down at his typewriter or whatever form of uh, communication he, or, or correspondence he had for writing his text with all of that going on and being Baldwin with that background that he has and to come up with this tech is no, is no, is <laughs> is no, it's not hard to believe that such an amazing text came out of that period of time from a man with the background that, that he has. And, and you, you set it up perfectly to, to kind of give us a great idea of, of how can we get such an amazing text from someone, but to think for all those things to be going around. And I, I kind of come to today when I'm wondering when, when that easy coach writes a book, what's going on in his world to make him come up with the amazing text that he comes up with versus what was going on in the world when Baldwin and comparing the two. And I would love to do that. Into that. <laughs> Let's start talking about his book. Um, mm -hmm. Page four um, was the first quote I put brackets around. You know, I'm a bracket person. And the first line that stood okay. out to me was, you can only be destroyed by believing that you really are what the white world calls a nigger. Ah, that was powerful. We yes. should say that The Fire Next Time includes two essays. One is a letter to his nephew, and then the second essay is like a letter that he's writing to the general public. Right. And this portion I also was, thought that was really profound. This was in the portion that was to his nephew. Again, you can only be destroyed by believing that you really are what the white world calls a nigger. Um, that, was, that was profound for so many reasons. I don't think we have to really expound on it. But again, something that was so true in 1963 when he wrote that to his nephew, uh, so true again today in 2021. If we believe these, and that's why representation is so important. Uh, representation on TV, media, film, they told us what we were. Uh, for so long. When I say they, I mean um, the white folks told us what we were to think of ourselves through media. And then as as um, uh, as we saw with 
uh, what was that first movie about the Klan that they showed in the White House and, and how that kind of went on to be people's birth of a nation, how, how that to be people's depiction of what black, blacks were about. And uh, even even texts that we um, that we ch choose to admire, like um, oh, my, my mind is slipping me now. Um, uh, Harper Lee, Harper Lee's book. What is it? Um, to Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird. Thank you, Rhonda. <laughs> when I think about To Kill a Mockingbird, just images of these these so-called seminal texts and seminal um, films of those mm -hmm. times kind of told us what what black was supposed to be. But Baldwin here is saying, we cannot believe that. We, we have to see through that and know that that is not who we are as a people. You know, his sentence construction is really interesting because he says, believing that you really are what the white world calls a nigger. Right. And so there's a very that he has, it's almost as if Baldwin is making the distinction right there, you know, that age old, not age old, but that, that discussion of the hard ER versus mm. A. And he's saying, right. and clearly, if you believe that you are the hard ER, then mm -hmm. you can be destroyed. Yeah. And he says that your grandfather really did believe what people said about him, mm -hmm. that it was pounded and so, James's grandfather, Baldwin's father, really did believe that, and that's what what ate at him. So they're probably, yeah. you know, these qualities of, uh, you know, dealing with work ethic and morals and values, mm -hmm. and all of those negative qualities that some white people ascribe to black people at the time. He actually, yeah. the grandfather actually believed, and that began to eat at him on the inside. And I can imagine giving advice to my nephew of the same vein, not exactly mm -hmm. the same words, but of the same vein to the effect of, yeah. you can't believe what other people say about you and you absolutely cannot believe stereotypes yeah. about you, about the worst, you know, the worst stereotypes or morals that people believe about you. Yeah, and he went Did on to- Did ever give you that kind of advice? No, I felt I was uh, somewhat sheltered uh, in a way where the church, my family, and whatnot, I'm trying to think, I'm sure at some point it was a kind of a fell off my, off my shoulders or went in one area out the other because I was already kind of fortified by my family and by my church and by my community to where I did not necessarily need to hear that device because it was always a, already a part of the culture that I grew up in, uh, in a sense. But I love when he went on to say in the next page, I know what the world has done to my brother and how narrowly he has survived it. Did you, look, did you hear that? Don't look at my <laughs> I underlined the same part. Yes. Right. Yes, so, so, so you asked me. My brother and how narrowly he has survived it. Right. So, I mean, I think of everyone. I think of um, Just Mercy in that town that um, – that, that that the setting of that town is where my family grew up, and and my dad oh, really? and, and then my dad grew Evergreen, Alabama, was a town just just next door to the town where Just Mercy setting was, and I think was about was it a town full of evergreen trees? Ah, is it? I'd imagine. Yeah, I never thought about that to be honest with you. I just knew it was Evergreen, Alabama. And actually, well, the opening scene has um, has Jamie Foxx 
cutting down a tree. Like that's the setup yeah. to yeah. the movie is that he's at work basically cutting down trees mm -hmm. and then he gets pulled over in his truck with the trees saying, well, you know, you killed. And I think the woman's name was Rhonda. The yeah, victim. and on the on the trip I just took with my dad to Uncle Nearest, on that trip he talked about selling timber off the property that we own there in Evergreen now. So yes, that, that's yes. definitely we're talking 40 years later, that is still yeah. a, a common um, yeah. uh, vocation for folks living in that area. Um, okay. but, but to narrowly anyway, survive back it, to the point. I took us all the way to the point. Yeah, to narrowly survive it, you know, we, like you asked, did I get advice? Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I was able to survive it, but I can definitely point to four of my friends who narrowly survived it, and I can point to two or three others that did not survive. Yeah. That's the real question. Uh, yes, I'm blessed and fortunate to say that, that I was brought up in this culture and, and fortified by, you know, church and family. But so many folks that I know, one degree of separation, were not. Um, and that's what he's speaking of here. And I, that's what we all know as, as, as Black folks. Um, you know, what's interesting, and it's, this just occurred to me, is that Baldwin sets up or explains in the next essay, because he says, I know what the world has done to my brother and how he narrowly survived it. It's this attachment to power. It's this refusal to be free. It's uh, the concessions that are just enough. And he mm -hmm. explains all of that later on in the next essay. So if his nephew was wondering, well, what, what does the world believe about me and how can that possibly destroy me? How did I narrowly miss it? Well, if he continues reading the rest of the essay, then he'll have a deeper understanding of what Baldwin is trying to communicate about the world, what the world believes about him, and why this is still the case um, these years later, a hundred years later, on the eve of the or on the centennial of the emancipation. And I'll close out this section. I think this is closing out the last bracket I have around the essay to his nephew. He said on page seven, and now you must survive because we love you and for the sake of your children and your children's children. That's what hit me. That's what I felt. I felt that I've only felt that I have to survive for those reasons. Mm -hmm. and, and to pass that on and to speak about this as a gen your generation is here for the survival of the next two generations um, and how how we have to somehow a culture and love and, and wrap our arms around those next two generations in the present by, by how we move and think and act today. Um, and that's what I felt he was passing on or saying there that we, everything we, how we move, think and act today affects the next two generations uh, uh, for black folks and for folks in general. Can we go back on that page? Mm -hmm. um, can we go back a little bit to where he says, set you down in a ghetto in which, in fact, it intended that you should perish. So yeah. what's happening now, oh, and he says, let me spell out precisely what I mean by that. For the heart of the matter is here and the root of my dispute of, with my country. You were born where you were born and faced with the future that you faced because you were black and for no other end. So 
yesterday I was driving through DC. I was driving home from my sister's house. She lives in Clinton. And so I was driving along the Suitland Parkway. And if you live in the district or have driven through the district, then uh, driving into DC past the suit, down the Suitland Parkway, on the left-hand side, you drive past uh, Barry Farms um, housing community. We've talked about this before because we've talked to people who live in that community. Mm -hmm. So we know that the community has been um, demolished. There's no Barry Farm housing project right. there. Um, and there are other housing projects, um, housing communities around uh, DC still. But what we know is true is that in housing communities and low income housing around the country, it was very intentional that they intended to group uh, black people together in one neighborhood in one economic um, income structure, income bracket, access to the lowest income, the lowest uh, mm -hmm. schools, lowest quality schools and live in the neighborhood. So what Baldwin was saying in 1963 is something that we're still grappling with in 2021. And, and it is mm -hmm. for no other reason. Like in DC, it's for no other reason than the fact that you're black and the right. city wanted to remain segregated. And so black folks live in very specific parts of the city that have very specific um, uh, problems that they're dealing with by nature of the concentration mm -hmm. of folks who are struggling with these issues. But it all, it all is intentional. And the more that we have learned recently about redlining, about transportation infrastructure, about access to water, basically mm -hmm. just, let's just call it life for yes. intensity. Yes. It's for no other reason than because you're black or yeah. you're Native American because you're Native American or because you are Chinese, basically you're not, you're not yeah. in the upper white class and that's why you're yeah. there. I think about that example you just gave with DC and, and Tulsa and truly cities all across the country. Um, the 1619 project spelled it out very well uh, about the infrastructure that was yeah. put in place to purposely segregate and uh, cut off economic uh, pipelines to different communities. Um, and that, that's exactly what is happening. I think about how in watching snowfall and, and reading the facts about what snowfall is based upon or how drugs and crack came into Los Angeles communities and spread across the, the, the country. Um, and, 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 and he's looking at the crack cocaine disparity, you know, because uh, cocaine is more expensive, so it's more accessible or more used by, by affluent folks, which are dis disproportionately white. Um, things like that that just this this he's speaking to that he's speaking to that here and, and how those yeah, disparities um, the connection Go ahead. i started to imagine your favorite writer your new favorite writer amani perry and the letter yes. that she wrote to her look at that face look look at that face look at that face you're gonna go back to print you're gonna take a class with imani perry but you know she writes to her sons this level, this level of truth. Mm -hmm. uh, they have different circumstances, of course. Imani Perry's sons are not growing a low-income housing community, but she mm -hmm. still has this level of honesty with yeah. them that Baldwin was having with his nephew. And I wonder about um, the courage that it takes to say, hey, I gotta tell you some really hard truths about mm -hmm. This is what it is. This is going to happen to you because you are black. Yeah. Baldwin said it in 1963 to his nephew, and Perry is saying it in, I think she wrote in 2019, 
yeah. to her sons. And so this message, and I can't imagine a time when it's not going to be necessary, as long as it's always going to be necessary to have that level of conversation with your, uh, your black male child or any male child who is not white. Uh, yeah. It's all just contextual. You can have the same conversation, you know, with a, a Latino boy or with a Native American child, but the details will be different. That's so true. I, I, and in speaking to Imani Perry's children, they may have all the privileges in the world to go to um, great schools and, and be exposed to all the things that their white counterparts are exposed to. But the flip side of it is that every person that looks at them and looks at their black face will assume and think that they have gone through much less than what they have gone through. And that in itself is a discrimination and a very racist uh, act to assume that because of your black skin, no matter what you have done that far exceeds what I have done as a white person or as an affluent person, I'm still going to look at you as the person who dealt crack in Los Angeles in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, it goes back to what we were, we were talking about at the beginning yeah. um, on page four. You can be destroyed if you believe that. So you can right. go on about your life, but you'll be confronted with right. their interpretation of who you are, and yeah. you'll be destroyed if you actually believe it. And I have to think that that is one of a parent's worst nightmares, is to think that their child sees themselves in the way that the worst of America or the worst of a power structure will see them mm -hmm. instead of seeing themselves as, you know, a beautiful, you know, high mm -hmm. potential kind of individual. That that would break yeah. my heart as an auntie if my nephew believed yeah. that about himself. Yeah, and that is only to the, de the detriment of America and to white folks to not be able to, to see that potential. But... All right, let's jump forward. The way that he closes, before you move on to the next oh, yeah. thing, I thought oh, yeah. where he says the last part um, on page 10, you and I mm -hmm. know that the country is celebrating 100 years of freedom, 100 years too soon, mm. which is a sentiment that we also care. We cannot be free until they are free. Mm -hmm. So that sets up this question of, so what are they enchained by? What's mm -hmm. holding white folks back? I'm sure we could all answer that question, mm -hmm. but we can't answer it for them. It's like being in therapy where your therapist is like, so what do you think you need to do? And right. clearly they know what you need to do, but mm -hmm. they're not gonna tell you. You're like, yeah. um, hmm. Yeah. But that interdependence of, I can't be free until y'all are free because you have the power to destroy me it's it's the eternal it's like that tension that bone deep tension yeah. that that black folks and all people of color really experience but especially black people given the proximity mm -hmm. to white folks in which we have lived and continue to live yeah and it's nothing personal when we finally are able to get into nothing personal i think it kind of peels back that onion a little bit more um i knew we were going to hear peel back the onion that's like one of your it is. I like feeling, feeling, I don't, I don't eat, you know, what's it, the blooming onion that they had at uh, the steakhouse? What's that steakhouse that had the blooming onion? But anyway, yes, I like to feel like the onion. Outback, yes. I haven't been outback in a decade, but <clears throat> I do like to talk about they the blooming onion. They also have them at Plant Burger. You know, the Plant Burgers at, um, at Whole Foods, they have the blooming onions too. Oh. They're really tasty. Okay. Let me check it out. 
I do like a woman on you. I took my nephew there the other day. He loves it now. So I'm jumping way ahead, way ahead, Rhonda. I don't know if you want to jump into some pages before I get there. Show. It's our show. It's our show. It's that project. It's that project. Which okay, is but us. this time so, is your show. <laughs> page 47. Page 47. We have a okay. quote here. <clears throat> it is not too much to say that whoever wishes to become a truly moral human being, and let us not ask whether or not this is possible, I think we must believe that it is possible. You must divorce, you must first divorce himself from all prohibitions, crimes and hypocrisies of, Christian, of the Christian church. If the concept of God has any validity or any use, it can only be to make us larger, freer, and more loving. If God cannot do this, then it is time we got rid of him. Mm. Let's add a little bit of context so we can kind of situate ourselves. Help us out. So Baldwin um, was actually called to the church very early on. He began preaching at 14, but it was a very short list, so to speak, in the churches. You know, it's like a storefront church. Imagine, um, I don't know if folks are familiar with storefront churches, but, you know, you get a little building, uh, mm. grab a pastor, a small congregation, a tambourine, and you got yourself a storefront church. And so, he, no shade, of course, I'm just, you know, I say yeah. this lovingly. So, T.D. Jake started a storefront church. See, there you go. <laughs> Everybody starts somewhere, and storefront right. churches are very prominent in Black communities. Uh, not necessarily prominent, but prevalent is the word that I mean in Black communities. So he's preaching at a smaller church as a young guy. He is driven to the church through his fear of the world fear of being bullied, fear of his relationship with his father, fear of being a black man in a white world. And he finds that he has a gift for delivering the, world, the word. And so he goes into the church, but becomes disenchanted with the church mm -hmm. and finds that there is hypocrisy. The church doesn't offer the meaning that he is looking for. We get to the quote that you just offered on page. Yeah. If the concept of God has any validity or any use, it can only be to make us larger, freer, and more loving. If God cannot do this, then it is time we got rid of him. It's funny, the thing that stood out to me most is the him at the end of the, uh, end of the word. Uh, <laughs> uh, comically, uh, Jovia, you know, I think of Boys in the Hood when they were in that scene, how you know he, he, he could be a she. This is... Um, you know, between Ice Cube and what's her? Uh, anyway, I forget her name. The amazing actress, director, producer. Regina King. Regina King, yes. <laughs> Regina King Regina and Ice King. Cube are doing the backseat. Yes, they're going back and forth. How you know he's a he? He could be a she. And with my daughters, every night when we pray, I say Father, Mother, God. I don't say Father, God. I say Father, Mother, God uh, mm -hmm. for that reason. But, you know, this is 1963. He wrote it. Uh, and I know he wants to be politically correct in some ways. Not, not many, but some ways. So, so we put him at the end of that sentence. Mm -hmm. And more loving. Um, that made me think about the LGBTQ movement. It made me think about poverty. It made me think about women. It made me think about race and racism and black folks. Mm -hmm. um, churches being some of the, as Malcolm X famously said, and truthfully said, uh, churches are some of the most segregated institutions in America. Uh, churches, uh, often have been known for being anti-LGBTQ. 
uh, churches are not, uh, you know, you think they are doing things to alle alleviate poverty, but it, it's not, um, it does not definitely by, it, by no means is a high priority for churches that we hear uh, in many churches. Some churches, of course, do uh, address these things. But this is what I thought about as I read that from him. And when I think about the churches I've, I'm familiar with, um, and some are, are not this way. I, I can think of one uh, that comes to mind, but generally. Just one? Just one. <laughs> just one. We have, um, we have a question. Mm -hmm. We see the question from a Black Boy Abroad. He oh. asks, um, why do you think Baldwin would, what do you think Baldwin would say about the Native American boarding school genocide? Mm. Mm. I think on the one hand, Baldwin would not be surprised by that because um, the, well, he would have witnessed the genocide of the Jews in um, World War Two. Two. Yeah, 1941-44. Mm -hmm. um, and so having spent time in Paris, he would have been aware of that. So I don't think he would have been surprised. And I also think that he would have seen that as an effort to maintain white supremacy. Um, right. That's what uh, settlers did when they first came to the United States was destroy Native Americans. And so anything that is standing against object of dominating the United States, uh, Baldwin would not be surprised efforts. But that doesn't mean that he wouldn't have grieved for it. What I got from Baldwin from this text and from the others is that he just had a deep sense of humanity mm -hmm. and that, that he loved, um, he aspired to love himself. He aspired obviously to love black people deeply, to love black culture. He said he had to come back to the United States because he wanted to get a biscuit and he wanted <laughs> to enjoy some fried chicken right. and to, to be like in the company of. So I think Baldwin really would have uh, grieved to know that that level of violence was enacted upon another group of people to uphold um, uphold that supremacy. So I think you would be really, uh, really saddened, saddened. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I totally agree. I, I so think you that- you talking about, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Continue talking about- I was gonna ask, take us back to uh, to God, but do you want to talk about the um, the genocide question? Uh, not so much, you really you really hit it on the, on the head. I think when Baldwin mentions as I said, when you see a black face, this may, we may have been talking about this privately, but when, you, when, when white folks see a black face, they think about the horrors that they have brought upon black people historically. I think when they see a Native American face, they think of the horrors that they have brought upon Native American people. And to be able to wipe that out allows them to somewhat, you know, wipe their hands clean of, of, uh, of, of, of what they have done. Um, now, I think that is why a segregated world is, is preferred by white people or probably preferred by white people. I'm not white because I can't speak to it, but it seems to be preferred by white people um, where they don't have to look at the black faces and realize the horrors that they are brought upon this, this country and this world. Um, and I, I believe that applies the same to Native Americans and the, uh, the horrors that have been brought upon the Native American population.
Um, and I believe Baldwin believes that too. Um, more about the church. So, yes, I, I agree with his comments um, that God has to make us larger, freer, and more loving. And if God cannot do this, then it is time that we got rid of him. So I spent some time in church and what we learn in church, and I, um, I attend a Baptist church, is that God already does this and God has already promised to do this in his word, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, um, that he gave his only begotten son, you know, to save us all. So I thought that it was interesting that Baldwin put the if in front of that, that he's actually questioning if God cannot do this and it is time that we got rid of him. Mm -hmm. um, if you believe the Bible and, you know, folks will take the Bible in its word and say it is the inerrant word of God, then he created, or God, the spirit of God, gender neutral created us humans then how are we going to get rid of him? Mm -hmm. how, are, how are we going to get rid of God? It's such an interesting construction, especially since the title of the book, The Fire Next Time, refers to a point yeah. at which God attempted to, or set up to destroy the earth. And then he was like, all right, all right, all right. I'm not gonna do that again. I promise I'll never mm -hmm. destroy you. But if you don't you know, clean yourselves up, then I'm gonna bring the fire next time. Yeah, like, is how, he, is I, that that part. Excuse me. Do you think he's wanting us to question the the concept of God, or 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 you know we're always saying we're about to get a little bit into the nation of Islam, and he he committed twenty. Does not read the Bible; they read the, a different uh, text, the Quran. Uh, am I correct on in that? I should have. Uh, mm -hmm. But does he want us to does he want us to reconceptualize what we think of as God? Do we do we should we not only be referencing the Bible? Uh, that one church that I'm thinking of is a, a church called Agape in Los Angeles, where they bring in the principles of Buddhism, they bring in the principles of Christianity, they bring in the the Christian uh, the principles of the Quran, um, and mm -hmm. And they, I, I'm not going to say they take from that what they wish. I'm, I'm sure that's very methodical and, and thoughtful in, in how they um, uh, preach to that con congregation. But do we need to, to second guess or think more deeply about what is this text really telling me and should I only take it the way that has, has historically been taken? Uh, so that's when you say throw God away. I, didn't, I don't think throw religion away, throw Christianity away, but we need to revisit what we have been accepting as what God really is, uh, is how I saw him saying it. I think, okay, so yes, I get that. And mm -hmm. I would say Baldwin's a writer. So yeah. he says exactly what he means. And he is a man who has spent time in it. And so he knows, yeah. I'm thinking that he knows the Bible. He knows full well the order of things that mm -hmm. God created man and then created woman. I'm sure he's familiar with that story. And mm -hmm. so I kind of believe that he, I think Baldwin would be like, I guess it. 
Well, in the video footage that I've seen, in the video footage I've seen of Baldwin, you were probably exactly right uh, in that response. Uh, So he probably would have dropped that line, (laughs) taken a drag on his cigarette, and then looked around, (laughs) and then like what? Yeah, yeah. You heard me. You heard me the first time. Like that's that's what I said. So it could be true that maybe he is looking for evidence because at this point he's left the church she's no longer active in the church he's just thinking about himself as a writer and so i think mm-hmm. he's expressing his doubt and his skepticism yeah. um as yeah. much as he seems to love people he also has such a an incisive eye at the world that nothing is left no subject could be left unturned he's always going mm-hmm. to ask really thoughtful questions really rigorous questions and i think he's going to say what he's going to say so I think he is saying like, well, if, he's, if he doesn't do this, because at this point I don't believe, then we should get rid of him. Mm-hmm. And I think he really means like we shouldn't believe in God at that point. Yeah. That's not to say that we shouldn't be thing and we shouldn't love people, all of those things. But I do think that he is saying that if, I think he's asking the question exactly the way he wants to ask it. With yeah. the belief that he wants to ask it. Yeah, so he committed, um about 20 pages to the Nation of Islam. And I think Elijah Muhammad's name first came came up around page 50. Mm -hmm. Um, Elijah Muhammad has been able to do what generations of welfare workers and communities and resolutions and reports and housing projects and playgrounds have failed to do to heal and redeem drunkards and junkies to convert people who have come out of prison and to keep them out and to make men chest and women virtuous, and to invest mm-hmm. both the male and the female with pride and serenity that hang about them like an unfailing light. And then he asks, he has done all these things, speaking of Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, which our Christian church has spectacularly failed to do. How has Elijah Muhammad managed to do it? Um, and then this led to, I mean, uh, he's... He spoke uh, alongside Malcolm X, um, and then he found himself at Elijah Muhammad's dinner table. But what do you think? I mean, about 20% of the book was committed to kind of reflection on the Nation of Islam. What do do you think about his reasoning for that, for that time? Well, I think Baldwin was always looking for an explanation about the black American condition. He's always wondering, how do we get to this point? How do we get to this place? Which is mm-hmm. why he's you know, writing this and reflecting on the last 100 years since emancipation. And I think he's also asking, how do we get beyond? So how do we get to be the people who we really want to be? How do we get free, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. and free and in the range that that encompasses, like free spiritually, free economically, just, you know, free to take that deep breath to live to be your fullest of people. And I think he was really intrigued what the NOI presented, that he was able to do what he said the Christian church could not do. And he had some experience with that. Remember, we were talking earlier about how the, um, how he left the Christian church because he became really disenchanted by it, but he looked at all of the moral hypocrisy. And so um, he says that he initially was not um, interested in what NOI had to say about the uh, 
separate black economy on page 48. He says, and I dismissed the Nation of Islam's demand for a separate black economy in America, which I had also heard before as willful and even, even mischievous nonsense. So he's like, mm -hmm. you all want the separate black economy? That's ridiculous. But then there were two things. He said the behavior of the police was the first one and then the behavior of the crowd. And so we know that James Baldwin had gotten jacked up by the police multiple times. And we also know that the police behaved differently around the NOI. And then also that he saw that, like you mentioned, some of those uh, folks who had uh, less than sterling behavior behaved when they were in the company of the of the NOI, Malcolm X being, you know, the example of that, mm -hmm. although he later disassociated himself with the NOI. And so I think that Baldwin really considered Elijah Muhammad because of everything that he had heard. You know, it's a case of where uh, Muhammad's reputation had preceded him. And so Baldwin was really curious to listen. And to, so what do you have to say about this? He's like, all right, well, what do you present as the solution to the situation? that we're mm -hmm. facing. But then as the dinner unfolds, Baldwin is like, mm, yeah, I don't about that. Like, that sounds okay, but I don't, I don't think I'm actually yeah. buying, you know, what you're selling here, this idea that you're selling. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think about technology? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I sent you that, uh, that photo, uh, the context was, um, so our favorite, one of our favorite authors, um, and professor, uh, professor Musgrove, um, mm -hmm. wrote that paper on something that includes technology and he attributed mm -hmm. the word to brand Nubians. Yeah. We thought that it was just like a rap word. But mm -hmm. it wasn't. It was actually took origin in a book that Elijah Muhammad had written, Don't Fall for the Trichnology. And uh, trichnology, as if I remember the word, the definition, it takes origin in um, like the trickery of the devil. So mm -hmm. it's like uh, deviousness that arises from from the devil. It's like, oh, okay, so that's where that. Uh, that comes from. I think of technology as like an extreme form of the okie doke. I don't fall for the okie doke, but the yeah. technology is something much more devious in nature than that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll read that. Um, something that. Oh, go ahead. Well, I'll read the, I'll read the passage because that was interesting because brand Nubian, uh, Professor Musgrove, we thought about it. But it always makes me think about it. you're always sampling, right? Like our conversation today, the conversation in this vein has been had many times by our ancestors, by our predecessors. Um, and I, I love that. I love the fact that this this word happened to have come up in a text that we chose to read um, after we talked, we spoke to Professor Musgrove, whose book we'll be reading uh, in a couple of months. Um, but the, the quote is, furthermore, the white man knows his history knows himself to be a devil and knows that his time is running out and all his technology, psychology, science, and technology are being expended in the efforts to prevent black men from hearing the truth. Um, so, right. And, and nothing uh, personal, which we'll uh, get into on July 11th, 
when he opened up that book, uh, talking about flipping through the channels with his uh, remote control uh, and how that, that uh, tends to sway how we want to present ourselves to the world. It, it sways how deep our conversations do and do not get. It sways how it sways so much of who we are based on that uh, idiot box and what, what, what the media and science and technology and technology puts onto it, puts into our brains. And so that, that that's what, um, that's what uh, I gleaned from, from uh, that, that paragraph. But if you think about it on a very practical level, mm -hmm. we see that applied in our public school system. We see it applied in uh, the way that the media will, the right wing media, the more conservative media will construe the media of, um, of the left or the more progressive wing. So when he's saying that you're expending energy to not learn the truth, it's true. <laughs> that, is, mm -hmm. that is happening. And right now we see legislators using the power of legislation to prevent uh, not just black folks, but just people from yeah. learning a, uh, a fuller picture of, of, Amer of the America that we live in. I was listening to Nicole Hannah-Jones on a podcast and she's Eric Foner, a historian at Columbia. And Foner says, our history books instruct us about a country that doesn't exist. So we need to be taught about the America that we actually live in, not the America that's a fiction of our imagination, not this dolled up America. Slavery never happened and genocides mm. never happened. We never right. um, deposed democratically elected presidents, you know, in other countries around the world where rape and plunder never happened. But those mm. things did happen. Um, and once we learn about those things, we can actually get free. But if we're at 753, so I'll kind of just make this point. Um, what Baldwin says, though, on page 88, is that there are too many things we do not wish to know about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's keeping us with, uh, with getting free and it's keeping us from achieving the American dream is because we actually don't want to know these things about right. ourselves. But if we did know them, then that would take us to actually uh, to being free and to preventing this fire from coming the next time. Yeah. That's an excellent point. So where should we go? I think uh, you're all right. We are coming up on an hour. How should we wrap this one up, Rhonda? Um, um, let's see. I have plenty more brackets because I, guess well, I went know, bracket, bracket crazy with ball one. I didn't quite get to <laughs> the last couple of pages of the book. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I don't think I have too much more that I can add about this text. I might have used up all of my good quotes. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, the perpetual achievement of the impossible um, is, a, is a theme that came out. Um, and that came out on page 104. For the sake of one's children, in order to minimize the bill that they must pay, one must be careful not to take refuge in any delusion. And the value placed on the color of the skin is always and everywhere and forever a delusion. I know that what I am asking is impossible, but in our time, as in every time, the impossible is the least that one can demand. 
And one is, after all, emboldened by the spectacle of human history in general and American Negro history in particular, for it testifies to nothing less than the perpetual achievement of the impossible. So when he, when he said that, you know, there's, there is amazing despair. There are amazing examples, past, present, and there will be in the future that makes us believe that the 1619 Project and things of that nature will continue to be thought of as myth by certain sectors of the, of the country and world. But for you and I to be sitting here uh, having this conversation would, would have been thought of as somewhat impossible uh, 50 years ago. Maybe not us. When I was at um, the Uncle Nearest uh, Grand Opening, uh, a whiskey brand, as I love my whiskey, that was a recipe that was uh, the nearest green gave to another whiskey brand during the days of enslavement. And for fast forward to complex to be opened up and one of the biggest whiskey brands in the world uh, to be Uncle Nearest, that is living our ancestors' wildest dreams. So there, there are there is evidence of us achieving the impossible every day almost when you think of how far black folks have come. And so I think what we don't take time to think about is how far we can actually go uh, as we are fighting these many wars every day in our lives. For us to think of how far we've come, there is so much further that we are capable of going. Um, and that's what that, that uh, page made me think about. Especially if we believe, I would add, if we have the courage to believe that these things are possible, again, going back to, you know, some of our earlier points about what do you believe about yourself and what, what beliefs do you reject that other people, that white supremacy culture tries to put, you are not part of that culture. And let's just be clear that white supremacy culture isn't just about whiteness as a construct, but it also has like an economic component as mm -hmm. well. So it's not just Absolutely. You know, this distinct um, binary of black or white or non-white and mm -hmm. white, but there are nuances to that as well. And so they're holding up a very specific image of what that looks like. And so Baldwin is saying, not only if you reject that, but if you believe that who you are is possible and that you can achieve that much more, then, then yes, you know, not the sky is the limit, but there's so much more that's that's open to you. Right. Um, and I think that's ultimately where he was going, that he, I think deep down in his soul, he was an optimistic person. I think deep down mm -hmm. in his soul, he was a hopeful person. Um, hope can exist alongside being realistic though. So he is hopeful with a full understanding, as he said, that the United States is celebrating freedom 100 mm -hmm. years too soon because we're not there and we may not have the courage to get there because we don't want to know, you know, the full history of ourselves and, and mm -hmm. what our country has actually done and, and been through. And again, yeah. the parallel to today is just crazy that we are debating this very notion of how do we teach our children? How do we expose ourselves to the full truth, to a truth that includes what was enacted upon 
various groups of people and what was enacted upon black people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's our next book? Well, our next book is another Baldwin and, and we have one on top of that. We, uh, we do want to have our book, next book talk rather. And I'm kind of glad that I will have to read this one again. Uh, it's about, you know, 60 pages, you know, taking out the forwards and afterwards. Uh, so I'm looking forward to reading Nothing Personal again since I lost it in my mad dash in the rain. Um, and we were going to have, <laughs> we will have a book talk. reading on the beach. <laughs> hey, hey. See? Nothing book personal. Book that's away. <laughs> July 11th. Seven, uh, are we going to 6 to 7 p.m. or are we going to move back up to 5 p.m.? I don't know. You're the captain of the ship. Let's see. Maybe we'll move back to 5 p.m. for July 11th. That'd okay, be your birthday weekend. Yeah, so you, you be the captain uh, and let me know. But for okay. our actual book for the month of July is a book I'm excited yes. about. Um, the only One of the only authors that Danielle, my wife, mentions that she loves to read her book, her work twice, is mm-hmm. Octavia Butler. And this will be my first Octavia Butler read. Um, so I'm not I'm, far behind. Super... It'll just be my second. I read Kindred. Oh. Mm-hmm. And now we get to read The Powerful of the Sower. Was it Kindred that she read twice? She read one of her books twice. And, and Probably. So she re- I think I texted her about it. <clears throat> okay. Okay. But Parable of the Sower. Parable of the Sower is our... Oh, okay. You know how I do. Is our July book. Um, so we hope you all will join us. That's pretty. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful book. Um, I'm looking forward to digging and into this one. And the of the Sower comes from, it's also um, another story from the Bible. It's one yes. of the biblical parables. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm on that thing. Looking forward to adding Octavia Butler to the TDP Be Reading collection. Um, I'm encouraging anyone who is listening or, or hearing to read these. I'm, I want to read them again just from I have to read this one again just because we have a, a book talk and I lost all my notes but I do plan to read uh, The Fire Next Time <laughs> again just because I want to really em- embrace and understand and feel what uh, James Baldwin was bringing to us and I know why it's a, yeah, an amazing text. It was not text. an easy read. No, no it wasn't. It, it wasn't all an the easy books... text but he is not an easy read. No, no, by no means. It's like, it's a lovely text. Like, Perry's a lovely text. Carter G. Woodson was, wasn't lovely, but it was still, it was easy and, and digestible. But, Very but, straightforward. Ba- but, but Baldwin is like, it's lovely, but it's, it's like, like. dude, what you saying? Yeah, like, it's like, what, what you, what you yeah. saying? Right, right. <laughs> and so I, I want to read it again. And I want to, I, I do want to understand more of what he was saying. Um, yeah. But I do understand even more why he is uh, held in such high regard and esteem as we all know him to be. Um, and I look forward to continuing to, to uphold him just the same with the TDP family. So. Good stuff. Good stuff. Good talk, partner. Good talk, partner. All right, we'll enjoy, talk. enjoy New York. See you later. Peace. Peace.